in an article by Chris Bailey on the website, A Life of Productivity, we read that in the U.S., life expectancy, average life expectancy is 79.3 years, 76.9 years for men, and 81.6 years for women. This is a decent amount of time, Mr. Bailey writes, but I'd argue this number doesn't give us the complete picture. According to the most recent American Time Use Survey, here's how the average employed person spends each day. About eight hours sleeping, about eight hours working, about two hours on household activities, an hour eating and drinking, a little over an hour a day caring for others, and an hour and a half on other tasks. And at the end of the day, then, this leaves just 2.6 hours to spend how we choose. Of course, he is neglecting the important category of busy moms of young children who spend 16 to 20 hours a day doing just that, caring for them. Let's look at these numbers, he writes, from a slightly different vantage point. While our life expectancy is 70.93 years, when we spend an average of eight hours of each day sleeping, that adds up to a cumulative almost 26 years of our life. Put this way, then, our life expectancy is down to 53 and a half years. Let's assume we consider a few items on this list. Work, household chores, maybe even eating and drinking. Over the course of your life, you'll spend seven hours doing chores and chowing down on, or seven years doing chores and chowing down on food and 29 years working. When you subtract these from our average lifespan, Chris Bailey writes, our life expectancy is now down to just 17 and a half years when it comes to doing the things we want to do instead of have to do. Embedded into our existence are for most non-negotiable duties that we must perform, working a job, caring for others, parenting, mowing, cleaning, chores, and we all share physical limitations that are non-negotiable like eating and drinking and sleeping. And at the end of our lives, we may rightly ask, as many do, where did all the time go? What did we do with the time that we were given? After all, that most wise wizard, Gandalf, puts it in Lord of the Rings. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. We have reached the conclusion of our series through this divinely inspired book of Holy Scripture, Ecclesiastes. And this book concludes with some final instruction and exhortation speaking into our busy lives and reveals to us what all of us are called to do in the time that has been given us in this brief life under the sun. What our ultimate duty is. As we make our way through our lives, men and women and children, married or single, successful or unemployed, in this life under the sun. So let's look at Ecclesiastes chapter 12, remembering once again that whenever we read from this book, we are hearing from God himself. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd, 
My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. May God bless the preaching of his word. So as this divinely inspired book of wisdom concludes, the vantage point you may note switches from the voice of the self-described preacher to in effect his editor as he describes the preacher and what we learn here in the conclusion is the reason for the preacher writing this book. We find the preacher's intent. And finally, we find what God intends we would do with all this, the intended effect of this book and what should be our priority as we decide to do, as we decide what to do with the time that we have been given. So I have two points in the sermon. First, we'll look at the intent of Ecclesiastes described here, and then the intended effect of Ecclesiastes. So first, the intent, verse nine. As I said, the vantage point changes. The preacher's editor begins to write. He speaks of the preacher. You may recall, if this is not Solomon, and we're not sure we are, at the very least, this book was written by a man with Solomon-like wisdom a descendant of great King David and a king of Israel himself. The editor says here he was not content to simply gain wisdom. He says the heart of the preacher in writing Ecclesiastes is to transfer that wisdom to the reader. That means us, to transfer the wisdom and insight he gained. And he labored hard at this teaching. We read, He was weighing and studying and arranging Proverbs with great care. Verse 10, he labored, he struggled to ensure that he not only provided words of truth, but also words of delight. For any present here who knows what it's like to write something, you see here reflected in the work something you've experienced, the laboring, the sentence crafting, the struggle to say it in the best way way. One commentator says the preacher is the patron saint of writers because some of us know what kind of labor this looks like. In fact, that looks like a lot of my week as I prepare a sermon each week. Here's why all of this work, verses 10 through 11, because the preacher knew what divinely given wisdom does to a man or a woman when received and applied. There is delight And not only is there delight, there is correction. There is guidance. And I I said divinely given wisdom because verse 10, this is, the writer says, all of this is nothing less than the care and the direction of the one shepherd, God himself. So the preacher says, Wisdom from God is intended to delight us and also to be like a goad. One website describes goads as this. Goads were typically made from slender pieces of timber, blunt on one end and pointed on the other. Farmers used the pointed end to urge a stubborn ox into motion. 
Occasionally, the beast would kick at the goad. The more the ox kicked, the more likely the goad would stab into the flesh of its leg, causing greater pain. So we read here then that the preacher labored in his task to gain wisdom and transfer wisdom. He is the heart of a teacher self-consciously understanding that in a real sense, the wisdom he gained and the words of wisdom he taught us has been given to us by God. So this book then self-identifies as inspired authoritative wisdom in scripture as Ecclesiastes takes its place in the canon of scripture, the collected sufficient scripture that we hold in our hands today, graciously, kindly, and generously given to us by God. All this comes with a warning. Verse 12, he says, My son, beware of anything beyond these words of the wise given to us by God. In other words, beware of speculation about life that goes beyond what is clearly given to us by that one shepherd. And this warning reflects much of what we have learned in Ecclesiastes. There is wisdom for us to obtain, but often the wise principles given to us don't exactly map onto our daily experience. Life is unpredictable. It is perplexing. It is often confusing. We may often ask, why is this happening? Or in light of God's goodness and promises, how does this difficult experience equal a good thing from God? Why are the wicked prospering and the righteous suffering? How does my difficult experience align with the purposes and promises of God? Well, he's been exploring those themes and he warns us here. We are warned against giving ourselves over to speculation and conjecture beyond what has been revealed to us by God. That does not stop us from trying. Verse 12b, he says, of making many books, there is no end. Much study is weariness of the flesh. I crunched some numbers last last week, which means I Googled. Uh, (laughs) Amazingly, it's estimated, and these are some, these aren't the most current stats. I couldn't find the most current stats, but recent statistics say that 130 million books have been printed since the introduction of the printing press. That doesn't mean copies. That means individual copies works. Also recent stats in a recent 2015, 1.7 million books published annually across the globe. About half of those are self-published. In the U.S. alone in 2015, 300,000 books were published. Not copies, individual books. If you go onto Amazon and you just simply put in the search category in the book category for wisdom, you get 80,000 book titles. If it was true in his day before the introduction of the printing press, how much more so now that we have the ability to publish with a click of a mouse? More books, more knowledge, more wisdom, and yet... With all of our technological advancements and wonders, certainly in the last couple of thousand years since Ecclesiastes was written, I think it's hard to discern in our daily lives that we have collectively really become that much wiser. 
for all those books, at least in the West. I mean, certainly at the most basic levels of education, there are enough alarming stats to put one off that idea. Furthermore, the preacher understands, and he wants us to understand, that simply reading and studying, immersing oneself in the constant flow of new content that arrives every day does not in itself lead to a wise life and may simply produce an exhausted, weary, complacent soul, even studying the Bible. We have our share of atheist Bible scholars from Isaac Asimov to Bert Ehrman. As this book concludes then, we are meant to understand the intent of this divinely inspired wisdom and by implication something vital more broadly about the intent of all of scripture, any word that is given to us by the one shepherd. Because we read here, this book, this wisdom, these words are nothing less than a gift from the one shepherd, from God, with a basic intent to delight and to direct us, to captivate and correct us, to gladden our souls and guide our steps. When we come to the scriptures and open them and read, there is a delight for our souls ready at hand. Certainly the psalmist saw this in Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Do you know this kind of delight? God intends that through his word we would find it delightful. David Gibson, speaking of this, says, I'll remind you one more time, if you want a book on Ecclesiastes to follow up after the series, pick up Living Life Backward. Very accessible, very wonderful. He says, you can measure whether you find the Bible delightful, not by how often you read it or by how much of it you read, and not by whether you find it easy or difficult to read, but by whether you approach the Bible expecting to be surprised. Bible delight is born when you expect it to teach you something you did not know already. The more childlike you are towards the Bible, the more likely you are to find it having just the right words for you. Each day, as you approach the Bible in your personal devotions or in family worship, and certainly each Sunday when we gather in corporate worship, remember there are no ordinary Sundays as we to gather together as the people of God under the authority of the word of God we do well to anticipate that God has delight for our souls. Delight, but also direction and correction. David Gibson again says, you will know that you know God when sometimes what he says makes you weep as he humbles your pride, reverses your expectations, upsets your priorities, offends your behavior, challenges your thinking. In other words, to sum up this first part of the conclusion of Ecclesiastes, divine wisdom is not given so that we can simply fill our heads, you know, and ace the Bible quiz competition. 
maybe inform others about how knowledgeable we are about the Bible. It is about our hearts being affected and changed. And that brings us to the main effect that Ecclesiastes should have on us, the second point. Verse 13, he says, The end of the matter, all has been heard. The preacher has shared everything that was in his heart. He has imparted to us this peculiar and strikingly relevant book of wisdom for us. Here's our big takeaway. What he describes as the whole duty of man. In other words, a really big deal. He has distilled down to the most potent essence of instruction and exhortation for our souls. And it's this. Here it is. Fear God and keep his commandments. So, perhaps we're surprised to find that this is the whole duty of man. Six words. Six words is all it takes to describe the whole duty that each one of us is called to. In other words, as we navigate a busy, complicated life with a million different decisions about our lives and careers and free time and family time and so forth. Hey, preacher, what should I do? He replies, fear God and keep his commandments. That is your whole duty. Now, often I expect that each of us wants to hear from God as we navigate through the complications of life. God, what should I do in this specific situation? Well, God can certainly and does at times provide a tangible sense of direction, but I can be sure of this and you can be too. In an unpredictable, confusing world full of many joys and also much suffering as we navigate through our lives, this is the answer. God What should I do? Fear God and keep his commandments. Always relevant then. You note if you're familiar with the book of Job and his sufferings and his confusion and his complaining, asking why is this all happening to me? When God comes to him at the end of Job, he does not provide an answer to his why question. He says to Job, I am God, live accordingly. He concludes verse 14, here's why. Verse 13, God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. He's building on what he already said in chapter 11, verse nine. For all these things in your life, God will bring you into judgment. And this is the testimony of scripture. For instance, Romans 14, 10 through 12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. As it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God for everything, for everything down to the words we flippantly use in casual conversation. Jesus says in Matthew 12, 36, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Imagine if we all lived like that was true. That would make a discernible difference in our small talk. So this is serious. 
and it's sobering. Apart from divine grace, actually, it's horrifying for those of us who are aware of our sin. For if we are judged on the basis of our sin, then we are all destined for the righteous and holy wrath that we deserve for our many rebellions against God. Which means, as we conclude Ecclesiastes, we need some good news. The creator and God of the universe is holy and righteous and just. And he will bring into judgment every offense that we have committed against him. But in his infinite kindness and mercy, he sent his willing son who came declaring, John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And so the, the one shepherd who has given us the wisdom of Ecclesiastes is the shepherd who came in time, space, history, born of a virgin, living the righteous life we should have lived, bearing the judgment we have earned, the wrath of God which stood against us in our sin. He bore the wrath of God in all its unrelieved intensity, dying as our substitute, rising from the dead, forgiving and cleansing and justifying and declaring not guilty all who put their faith in him. Oh, we need good news. And there is good news as we stand before the creator. Listen, if you're not a Christian, maybe you've been coming for a couple of weeks. Maybe it's your first time. Maybe you've been following along in Ecclesiastes. Listen, This is the good news. This is the best news that you could ever hear. There is a day of reckoning and judgment coming. But God will, by his mercy and grace, rescue you from wrath and deliver you into his family, cleansed and forgiven and justified, if you will put your faith in the one who has died and risen and is our mediator before God. Having been forgiven and justified by grace, we eagerly hear and apply the exhortation of verse 13. Now we are those who fear God, not as terrified objects of his judgment and wrath, but we fear him in adoration and trembling amazement at the grace and kindness of our holy God. Charles Bridges defines the fear of God when he says, fearing the Lord is that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. That's what it means to fear God and keep his commandments. Having come to know the grace of Christ in and through the gospel, the unbreakable love of God in Christ for our souls, oh, the last thing we are afraid of is obeying his commandments. Just a verse like verse 13, that's just, we're not going to get nervous about a verse like that. Maybe this is legalism. No. Having come to know Christ and having experienced his grace, it is our joy to hear the voice of the one shepherd and follow his commands. This is simply the normal Christian life. Psalm 112, one, speaking of this says, praise the Lord, blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. Jesus put it simply, John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
not as a means to clear our guiltiness before God or to get him to love us, but because we have come to know his love and we love him. So we don't need to sidestep verse 14 either because we believe the gospel. No, we are the children of God who in affectionate reverence bend ourselves humbly and carefully to our Father's commandments. We make it our aim to please him. We rejoice in the liberation from the fear of God as judge because we have been brought into the fear of God as father. Note the last four words though. God is not blind. He will bring all things, whether good or evil, to light. We will stand before God. He will receive us into his presence only in and through Christ. But we remember this, Derek Kidner, in his commentary in Ecclesiastes, says the last verse of all drives home the point just made with a final blow that is sharp enough to hurt, but shrewd enough to jolt us out of apathy. It kills complacency to know that nothing goes unnoticed and unassessed, not even the things that we disguise from ourselves. But at the same time, it transforms life. Listen, if God cares as much as this, nothing can be pointless. That's why the apostle says to us, no matter what appearances are, your labor in the Lord is never in vain. Okay. Maybe you're hearing this whole fear God thing, and in you, you find anxiety. Let me... Let me press into what this whole fear God thing is, lest there be any present who misunderstand or misapply this exhortation to sort of live cringing before God, ready for him to drop the hammer at any moment. Michael Reeves, in a wonderful book that I commend to you, Rejoice and Tremble, about the fear of the Lord, says this. The living God is infinitely perfect, and quintessentially, overwhelmingly beautiful in every way. His righteousness, his graciousness, his majesty, his mercy is all. And so we do not love him aright if our love is not a trembling, overwhelmed, and fearful love. In a sense, then, the trembling fear of God is a way of speaking about the intensity of the saint's love for and enjoyment of all that God is. If you take that definition and transport it to your Bible reading, you will begin to see the truth of that everywhere. Speaking of the Messiah to come, Jesus Christ in Isaiah, we are told that his delight is in the fear of the Lord. Here's the deal. If we perceive God as only the sovereign, holy creator, we will live in a kind of fear that looks like hiding from him, running from him, shielding ourselves from him. On the other hand, if we perceive God as only love and acceptance, we will have a shriveled view of God. We will be tempted to think of him more as a doting entity rather than the one overflowing with beautiful glory and majesty. But listen, if in and through the gospel... We see our holy creator through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, then we will perceive God as he is, infinitely perfect, 
overwhelmingly beautiful, righteous, gracious, majestic, merciful, and we will tremble before him as we experience the knee-buckling intensity of our love and our enjoyment in him. Michael Reeves, one more time, says, what does it look like when a believer is filled with the right, healthy, filial fear of God? Filial meaning the love between a child and a parent. Not a cold, dead, outward, hypocritical show of reverential religion, but a heartfelt quaking at the goodness and greatness and glory of the Redeemer. And that's our whole duty. Fear God and keep his commandments. Heartfelt quaking at the goodness and greatness and glory of the Redeemer while making it our aim to please him, the one who has blessed us beyond measure. So let me ask you, do you have questions about what is happening currently in your life or about the future? Fear God and keep his commandments. That is the banner over all our questions. It undergirds and informs every decision we make as we make our way through this life under the sun. The preacher knows, and he talks about it regularly throughout Ecclesiastes, he knows of the toil and the work and the suffering and the joys and the daily ordinary things like food and drink that are still gifts from God to enjoy. He's not at all avoiding the reality that there are many duties in front of us each day. Each day when we rise, we are immediately greeted by a number of things we have to get after. But through it all, over it all, under it all, we fear God and keep his commandments. This is the chief effect that God intends we leave this book with. I'll close with this. Aren't you grateful for Ecclesiastes? The kind of God to give us Ecclesiastes. Next week, we will leave behind this sermon series. But oh, let us not leave behind what we have learned in Ecclesiastes. Let us not fail to apply immediately today the whole duty we are called to. And each day as we rise and as we navigate through our busy lives for the glory of God. The preacher says, life is brief. It is vanity. In other words, it's enigmatic. It's quickly passing. It can be confusing. It can be disorienting. There are joys and they are, there are suffering. We are called to live in the moment. We are called to take advantage of every opportunity, even an implication that God approves of bucket lists. But in all of this, the preacher says, in every moment of every day in our lives under the sun, we fear God. And we keep his commandments. I'll end with this. William Laud, a wonderful old preacher, says, Grant, O Lord, that we may live in thy fear, die in thy favor, rest in thy peace, rise in thy power, reign in thy glory for thine own beloved Son's sake. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.